How are we doing this morning? Everyone doing all right? It's kind of rough not having Pastor Dwayne around. I miss that guy, especially moments like these. But so, have, have uh, any of you guys ever messed up? Raise your hand if you've ever like just blew it. Have ever just blew? It? Wow. Okay, this sermon's for you. All right. So uh, we fail. We mess up. I was as I was getting ready for this sermon, I was trying to think of the times in my life when I've just epically failed. Because I figured if I'd share them, then you could identify, and we can get started on the same page. Uh, so one time, I was hanging with my friends at college, and they took a little axe spray, and they sprayed it on their arms, and they lit it on fire, with like a little flame, and they would come back, and you know, we all laughed and thought it was funny. And they'd say, Keith, why don't, why don't you uh, light your whole chest on fire? Like, just spray it all over your chest and just put a, flame, uh, put a, yeah, a little flame to it and see what happens. And it sounded like a good idea at the time. Epic failure. It was awful. What didn't tell me is that if you had a lot of hair on your chest, once the, the gas or the perfumes kind of, the fumes kind of, you know, go out, if it catches fire to your chest, hairs, it, it's not going to go out right. It's going to burn for a little bit. So they eventually threw me a blanket. I'm like snacking out the flames and I couldn't sleep on my belly for like six weeks afterwards and... It was horrible. My girlfriend at the time uh, told me that I should wet my hair so I wouldn't catch my hair on fire. And luckily, that happened. Actually, she married me then, too. That's kind of, you'd think she'd have learned, right? But epic failure. What I thought was going to be a brilliant fun, I was going to light my chest on fire. Turned out to be a horrible experience. And then after we did, they reminded me, hey, Keith, remember that, that rule in the dorm about no open flame in the dorm? I think you broke that. It's like, ah, oh, so I'm running to the bathroom, trying to shave my beard, cut my hair in the back, because it was all singed. It was obvious it was open flame in the dorm. And in walks the RD, and he just walks right past me. I'm at the sink shaving. He walks right past, heads to a stall, closes the door, and he was like, Keith, do you smell something funny in here? I'm like, it's the bathroom. It always smells funny. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, one time... Uh, another epic failure. One time I was playing with my cousins and we got bored. We were at a creek and had a little bridge going across about, eh, I don't know, maybe 15 feet tall, something like that. And we had this brilliant idea that as cars would drive by, we should throw water on them. You know, it'd be like driving a you know, boring drive through Pennsylvania. Surprise, water from both ends, you know, and the window wipers are going. We thought it was brilliant. Another epic failure. It worked for the first couple of cars. It was kind of fun. The water, you know, the cars would jam on their brakes and the wash. You know, you're driving on a summer day out of nowhere, two, you know, waves of water over crossing a bridge from crashing over you. We thought it was funny. I was younger. I wasn't as mature as I am today. We thought it was funny. Uh, but the problem was that my cousin, who was yelling now as the cars passed by, because we couldn't see the cars, uh, didn't tell us that the car he was going to yell now to was a convertible. With a blonde, t- mid-20-year-old girl who didn't have a sense of humor. And so, epic failure, epic failure. She was sopping wet, and she pulls over, comes walking out. We're all swimming downstream, and she's not happy. So, I failed a lot in my lifetime. But, but I think I get it from my dad, because my dad fails a lot. And I love my dad. He's a great dad, but he definitely fails. So, one time, one of his epic failures, we're driving to Canada as a family. Now, I remind you, there's 12 of us kids. We're all stuffed in this van. It's been a hot trip. We want to get out. We're almost there. We're crossing the border, and we come to Border Patrol, and they're looking at our van. And my dad, well, they asked my dad, are all these your kids? A standard question. And my dad, thinking he would crack a joke 
epically fails and saying, yeah, I picked up a couple along the way. Two hours of sitting in this office to go through every missing child report in the United States for 12 kids. Oh, it was ridiculous. So we failed. And this morning we're going to talk about David because we're going through this story um, or this curriculum called the story. If you look at our posters on the side, we're kind of marching through. The idea of is, is if we tell all the stories in the Bible, well, at least 31 weeks of the stories of the Bible, connect them all. We as a church will better understand what God's grand big story, all the pieces will kind of fit together. So last uh, Sunday, Dwayne preached on the beginnings of David from shepherd to king and how he got there. And today I'm picking up with uh, a part of David's life where he uh, commits his biggest sin, and it's with Bathsheba. Now let's remind ourselves who David is here, okay? Now David is the king of Israel. He ends up in the hall of faith, hall of fame of faith in Hebrews. He's the slayer of giants. He's the deliverer of Israel. He's in the chosen line of the Messiah. Like, this is a great guy. This is, if anyone we can call a godly man, you'd think it would be David. But what happens? What happens? And as we go through the story of David this morning, it's important because it's been recorded for good reasons. But I want you guys, hopefully, to pick out from the story, what do we do when godly men and women, when us, the church, when we mess up? What do we do? When you wake up and reality hits you, you're like, man, I've, I've messed up. I've made an epic failure. I've made a big mistake. How do we respond? How do we, how do we move on from that? And I'm pretty sure the story of David and Bathsheba was recorded. Because David sinned, I'm sure, other times it wasn't recorded. But this was recorded to answer that question of how do we move on from our epic failures when we find ourselves in deep sin. Which brings us to our first thing I want us to realize about the story of David. Being a Christian does not mean the avoidance of sin. Now, I know that sounds simple, but oftentimes we get it wrong. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we're not going to sin. David did not get discredited for being a godly man by sinning. And this was a major sin we're going to be talking about this morning. It It was huge. He didn't get discredited for being a godly man. What makes us a Christian is the connection we have to Christ in the midst of our gross sin. And the desire we have to live in holiness. In other words, it's our reaction to sin that separates a godly person from the world, not necessarily our lack of sin. Does that make sense? All have sinned, but it's a reaction to sin that separates us from the world. Okay, let's read the story of David. If you got your uh, iPhones, get your iPhones, your smartphones, your iPads, your Bibles, let's get them out and let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Okay, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Okay, let's stop there. Are you catching what's going on? This chapter starts off by explaining how David kind of ended up in this sin. It's giving a little bit of background to this horrible sin that's about to happen. David's not out with his army. He's being a little lazy. 
Now, I'm sure in his defense, he's thinking, hey, I deserve a break. I've been fighting all these battles. I've been doing all this great stuff. It's time for David to take a little breather. Let, let Joab go out with the army. But he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And I'm sure he had no idea that being a little lazy and getting a little bored would lead to adultery and murder. But this, isn't that how sin starts? I mean, it never starts. No one wakes up saying, I'm going to do a big sin today. Let's, let's, kind of, let's kind of see the track of how this slippery slope works. Satan is in the background, and he's trying to get David to just relax a little bit. Just relax in your faith. Relax on your standards. You normally go out to war like you should. You've always done what's right. Even when Saul was going to kill you, and you had that chance to kill Saul in the, you know, in the cave, you didn't. You've always done what's right. You've always, to the T, done what's right. Now just, just relax a little bit. You ever get that before? Just relax. It's okay. It's, it's one little thing. It's not a sin to relax. But it sure led to a series of things that led to uh, adultery and murder. Well, let's go to verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed, was walking around the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. And the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. Okay. David should have been out with his guys fighting the battle. First mistake. Next mistake here. He didn't bounce his eyes. Guys, you know I'm talking about bouncing your eyes. You're walking down the street and you see someone who's immodestly dressed. You're like, boom, bounce eyes over here. And boom, you're watching a movie and a screen comes on, boom. As youth, with the youth group, us guys, we talk about bouncing your eyes some. Seems like in today's world, you can get dizzy if you bounce your eyes. Or if you bounce your eyes every time you're supposed to because there's just so much corruption out there. But David, he didn't bounce his eyes. He's looking out there, he sees her, and he should have been like, okay, I'm looking over here. Didn't happen. He noticed that she was beautiful. And I don't know how long he stared at her, but... It takes time to notice things, and he, he noticed. And then his next not-so-great move was he, well, I'll, I'll at least ask about her. I'll find out who she is. I mean, she's beautiful. I'll find out who she is. So he sent messengers and found out she was Bathsheba. And then he found out that Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah was one of David's generals in the army. He's out fighting with Joab. He's one of David's mighty men. And so, so he's probably thinking in his mind, rationalizing why he should meet this woman, thinking, oh, you know, her husband's gone out fighting for me, one of my jump. Maybe I'll, I'll bring her up just to, just to check on her, make sure she's doing okay. You know, her husband's gone, she might need something. So next bad movie calls her up to his castle, tells his messengers, well, I just want to check on Bathsheba. Can you go? Can you go get her for me? And one thing leads to another. Now, there's a lot of debate whether... It was rape or adultery, what happened between David and Bathsheba. Um, I don't know. I tend to lead towards it was more of a rape than it was adultery. Because if you're the king and you call, you call a woman in, uh, I think you put a lot of pressure on her. But whatever happened, we know that something very immoral happened because they slept together. Let's go to, uh, let's go to verse number four. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, it makes a little side note here. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. I'm trying to give David grace here. 
Maybe, maybe he was so used to getting what he wanted as king. Maybe that power kind of went to his head that he forgot that he had boundaries even as king. But he crossed them. And he defiled Bathsheba by calling her to his room and seducing her. And I'm not sure exactly what happened, but he got her pregnant. And now he's in to some big trouble here. And it, the scripture makes notice that Bathsheba knew she just had her monthly time. And so she knew that this was not a baby from Uriah who had left before to go fight. She knew it was David's baby. This should have been David's first wake-up call. He should have realized what he had done and humbly repented and made things right. But instead, he goes the other way, which we so often do. And it's so destructive to ourselves and others when we figure out, well, look, if I just can cover this up somehow, it'll all be okay. This is verse 6. So David tries to cover up, which leads to murder. So David uh, sent his word, or this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite, which was her husband. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with his master servants and did not go down to his house. Okay, you guys putting two and two together here? He's now he's trying to get Uriah. He brought him back. He's trying to get Uriah to go home to sleep with his wife. So when she starts showing she's pregnant, everyone's going to assume it's Uriah, not because she had spent time with David. He's trying to cover his tracks. But Uriah is a righteous man. And this, is, this is how he responds. Uh, verse number 10. David was told that Uriah did not go home. His plan failed. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from military camp? Why don't you go home? And this is what Uriah says to David. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and to make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. This guy's righteous. I mean, he's like, I'm not going to go home and sleep. In my house with my wife. All my other guys and my fellow soldiers are out there. I'm sleeping out here with intense. Outside the palace. My heart breaks at this point. Because here's Uriah a righteous man. And because David's corruptness. And he has no idea. Uriah has no idea what he's done to his wife. What David's done to his wife. And yet because of David's corruptness. Like he's going to really really hurt Eventually murder this man. This is so often our sin, especially when we're trying to cover up. We hurt people who have nothing to do with our sin, who are innocent bystanders. We hurt. Then David said to him, stay one. This is verse 12. Then, then David said to him, stay one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. Plan B, get him drunk, send him home. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and did not go home. In the morning, David, I'm sure out of desperation, wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab... And, and the city under rage. So while Joab in the city under rage, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's armies fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. 
So not, not just your eye got affected here. He's not the only one dying. Uh, other men in David's army fell because of David's bad battle plan to get Uriah killed. He said, instead of going to the weak here, he said, go to the strongest area that fight against them. And then all of a sudden, just surprise Uriah and everybody pull back. Well, they did that, but in the process, a lot more men got killed too. David's sin is causing severe damage. People are getting murdered. After Bathsheba is done mourning her husband's death, David then makes her come to his castle. And he says, you're going to marry me. And he marries her. Then the Bible says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. A major understatement here. So, the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David. Now, I want you to recognize this is God's first step of grace. David has sinned majorly here. Rape, murder, and he's trying to cover it up still by marrying Bathsheba. And God's first step of grace. And we think we need to recognize this because it's going to be God's first step of grace in our life when we've messed up. As he brings conviction and guilt. He sends someone to say, David, you're wrong. Guys, we're often so down on conviction and guilt. But it's God's grace. If you feel guilty about something, if you feel convicted about something, recognize that's God's grace. Don't, don't, oh, I don't want to ever go where I feel guilty or where I feel convicted. I don't want to be around that person. I don't want to do that because of this. Recognize that gives you the opportunity to examine something. Without guilt or conviction, we wouldn't examine it. And when we fail, God's grace comes in. He brings conviction and guilt. Otherwise, we would die in our sins. And we would never repent. So Nathan tells a story to David. He said, there, this is uh, chapter 12, verse 1. He said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. He grew up with it. And his children, it shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or Cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. At this, David blows up. He's like, what the world? He's like, I demand that that guy. How could he? That was his only sheep. He only had one little lamb. It was like his own child. And this guy had lots of sheep. And yet he took, he stole the little man's sheep. To make food for his traveler? David, like, that guy needs to die today. He must die. And he flares up. Go Nathan here. Boy, this would be a hard turn of events right here. Can you imagine Nathan's footsteps? Like, well, actually, you just put a death sentence on yourself. Uh, This is verse 7. Nathan says to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to, or gave the master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. 
Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Which is so sad, but it happens later in the story. David's sons, they do die by the sword. The sword never leaves his house. Before Absalom, one of David's sons, dies, he rebels against David and tries to take over the kingdom. And in the process, he forces David's concubines to sleep with him on top of David's rooftop for all of Israel to see. Incredible corruption and defilement to David's house. So David has been confronted. The sin and the consequences have been clearly laid out before him. How is he going to be? How is he going to respond? Up to this point, everything David has done, I highly recommend not doing, was sin. But but now in the story, we see an awakening kind of happen to David. It's been put in his face. He's awakened to his sin, and he realizes the damage he has created. And he starts responding like a righteous man should. So how do we respond when we find ourselves messed up? We find ourselves, we wake up, we're like, man, I've just sinned. It's big. I've sinned. How do we respond? Let's pay close attention to David. Second Samuel twelve thirteen. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. David accepts his punishment and repents. Listen to this. And God graciously takes away his sins and spares his life. Now, most of us are rooting for David at this point. Like, David's the main character. Like, so when God takes away his sin, we're like, yeah, that's what our God does, right? He takes away our sins. And so we're happy when we hear that David, uh, his sins are forgiven and they won't be, you know, damned for hell. Or he's not going to be, you know, nothing's, he's not going to be killed right now. Like, God has passed over. The word, the better word for taking away is passed over. The Lord has passed over his sins. But let's think a minute. Let's play play with our imagination. Okay, we're happy about this. But what happens if you were Uriah's father? Think about this. And you found out that the king of Israel took your son and murdered him because he slept with his wife and got her pregnant. Now are, you, are you, now are you happy about David's forgiveness? He always said was, I've sinned before the Lord. And, God's, and God said to Nathan, tell him that I've passed over your sins. And they're like, they never happened. I've forgiven them. There's no eternal consequences. What happens if you're Bathsheba's mother? And you're there and you had to, you had to hear from your daughter. How the king of Israel seduced her and brought her up there. And put pressure on her. To sleep with him. And got her pregnant. And then killed 
her husband because he wanted to cover his tracks. You're Bathsheba's mother. Now, when you hear that the Lord has graciously forgiven David and has passed over his sins and there's no consequences for him in the afterlife, and it's like it, he's going to spare his life. Are you happy about that now? I mean, let's get the rubber hitting the road here. Child molesters, a person who molests children, can God really forgive them? Could a, a good, a righteous, a just, a just God, right? We call God just. Can he really look at a child molester and say, okay, because you asked forgiveness, you said you're sorry, I'm just going to be like, okay, pass over it. I'm going to pass over it and I will forgive you of those sins. There'll be no eternal consequences for those sins. What about a murderer? A serial killer? Can God really take a serial killer? I mean, how is that just? For us who have been living good lives and someone's out murdering people, how can they, how can they stand before God and, and say, well, I said I was sorry, repentant, and so God graciously just covered over their sins? Is that justice? Can God claim justice in that situation? And the answer is, Yes, you can. God is good. God is just. God is true. And he looked at David's murder and David's rape. And he looked at David's heart of repentance and he said, I'll pass over your sins. I will. And you will not die. You will be in eternity with me. This takes us. This takes us to the question of justice. How can God forgive David of that and still be a just God? Because I think in all of our minds, I certainly resonate with the thing of you murdered, you raped, you die. Let's go to Romans chapter three twenty-five. Actually, I have it up on the screen here. If you don't want to turn there, because we'll be doing some more out of Second Samuel, but uh, up on the screen here, Romans chapter three twenty-five. How could God do this? This is the answer. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Okay, let's, let's dissect this a little bit. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means an atonement, the covering of the blood, the, the remedy, the paying for, by his blood to be received by faith. That those who have faith in God can receive that atonement. This was to show God's righteousness, the goodness of God, the justice of God, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That means sins that were done before the cross. So what Paul is trying to explain here is that God put Christ forward on the cross to pay the punishment for all the sins of the world, even the worst sins out there, so that those who believe and have faith in God, they will be made clean of their sins. They will be forgiven. I believe that God looked at David's faith, which united him to the cross of Christ, to the coming Christ, which atoned for his sins a thousand years before Jesus even died. Christ's sacrifice was so powerful, was so outrageous, was so gruesome, was so perfect. That not only paid for the sins after the death, after his death on the cross, but even those sins that were committed by men of faith before the cross. Because God knew that sacrifice was coming, 
And he knew that, yes, even rape and murder would be covered on the cross. When he saw David's faith, he was able to say, your sins are forgiven. They've already been paid for. That price has been paid. And therefore, God could claim justice and look at a, a murderer and a rapist and say, I forgive you. Your price, yes, someone has to pay. You're right. <laughs> someone has to pay. But that's what the cross was all about. So that I could look at you and in perfect justice say, I'll pass over those sins. I'll remove those from you. This is powerful and such incredible news that the cross was outrageous enough, gruesome enough to cover the sins of the world and yours and mine and everyone, no matter how horrible, no matter what they've done. And with true repentance, there is forgiveness. Now, as we look at David, how do we know that he had true repentance? How do we know that he had true faith? In God. We obviously can't see David's heart, but God can. And God accepted it, so we, we must assume that his repentance was, um, was in faith and was good. It wasn't a, a bad repentance. And God accepted it, so I think we should be all be tuning our ears. Okay, what, what did David say? What did David do to, to repent in a way that God was like, I'll forgive you. I'll, I'll pass over that sin. Um, it doesn't say anything, but David said... You know, I've sinned before the Lord. But good for us, David was a songwriter. And in the midst of this situation, right, he wrote a lot of psalms. And it's, it's unique because, or it's interesting because most psalms are just random psalms out there. We don't really know why they were written or the, the reason they were written. They're just kind of David's songs, the psalms we have. But let's, go to, let's all turn to Psalms 51. This psalm is really unique in the fact that it gives direct insight to why this psalm was written and what, uh, what the scenario was. Psalms 51. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of, of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Did you guys catch that? To the choir master, a psalm of David... When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, nailed it down to this point in history. This is right after Nathan came to David and exposed that what he had done to Bathsheba. If we want to know how do we respond when we've messed up, when we've blown it, what should our heart be looking like? What should our heart do? How do we move on? How do we come in under true repentance? This is where we go. This is David's heart. This is, and I think, I know specifically why this is in the Bible and why it has those directions to what part of the story it fits to, so we can understand repentance. So let's read it. The first thing that David's going to jump into is he's going to understand the severity of his sin. Isn't that opposite of what we try to do? Once we find ourselves in sin, don't we try to downplay it? Well, you know, they did it first, and, or he did it with me, and, and I was really tired that night. Oh, it was, it was, I was struggling. It was, it was a bad time for me. I mean, don't we try to downplay the severity of the sin and try to make it more logical of why we committed it? But that's not repentance. There is a ton of things in Psalms uh, 51 that you can pick out with repentance. I'm going to grab four uh, things that I noticed, but there's a lot more in there. But the one thing that I noticed right away was David does not downplay sin. He understands the severity of it. Let's start reading uh, verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. See, when we recognize the severity of our sin, we can call on God's mercy. We will not call on God's mercy if we don't recognize how severe our sin is. If we try to downplay it, well, well, I don't really need God's mercy. 
But when we understand the severity of our sin, we then call upon God's mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in the words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Okay, the second thing I want us to take notice here is that David becomes passionate about being changed. So he won't ever do these sins again. True repentance is directly related to a passionate desire to be changed. I think we miss that. Oftentimes we say we're sorry because we feel guilty, not because we want to change. We actually kind of like what we did. We might do it again the next day. It's just before we go to bed. Sorry for everything I did, God. Sorry for this. Sorry for that. That's not repentance. That's not the kind of repentance that God accepts. True repentance is directly linked with a passionate desire to be changed. John Piper, he's one of my favorite preachers out there. Um, He has this saying that I like. He says, the mark of being forgiven is the passion to be changed. I love that. You you can test your repentance. How true is your repentance? Is there a, a desperate, passionate desire to be changed? And David goes on with it. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God. This is verse 10. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Okay, let's stop there. Joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. The joy of our salvation is what gives us the strength to live in that change. And keeps us from falling back. Does that make sense? The joy of our salvation is what God gives us as our strength. So often, I think when we lose that joy, that's when we fall into sin. And we need to say, God, restore that joy. Remind me of the glorious gift I have of being your child, of being saved, of being secure in you, so that we'll never wander away from that. So, so far, we have recognized the severity of our sin which, and asked God for mercy which is the first step of true repentance, uh, become passionate to be changed and ask for the joy of salvation to return for our strength. Now, we got one more I want to talk about. Let's go to verse 13. It says, Then it will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. I think we miss this step with repentance. Did you hear what he said? David ends his prayer of repentance with the desire to use his horrible sin to somehow... Teach other sinners about God's forgiveness, about God's greatness. The last thing here is we should use our sin and mistakes to be a testimony to others of God's greatness, of God's forgiveness, of of who God is. And that's a part of repentance. That's the full round circle repentance where we come out and we say, okay, now I've sinned, I've messed up. I recognize the severity, so I called upon God for his mercy. I've become passionate to be changed. Um, I've asked for joy to come back, restore the joy. The bones that you have broken, may they rejoice to keep me in strength. I'm not stopping there. 
And now, Father, I want you to take my sin and I want you to give me the boldness to confess it to others. Give me the boldness to stand up and tell others about it as a testimony of what you did in my life. As a testimony of your forgiveness and how a God can forgive sins. That's the full circle of repentance. Let's go ahead and let's finish the, the psalm here. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then the bulls will be offered on your altar. Do you, do you see this change in David? He's like, I want to be about your work. What are you doing? How can I use my story to tell others about you? This is what a true repenting attitude looks like. Now, David still faced earthly consequences. In fact, uh, when his baby died... Uh, he has this line that goes, I will not return, or I, my, baby will, my baby will not return to me, but one day I will be with my baby again, my little baby boy. The thing that David's trying to show here is that, yes, he has consequences on earth. There was a lot of severe consequences. Sin does. But those are all temporary. The important thing is eternity. And David says, I will live with these consequences. And one day, because the Lord has graciously forgiven my sin. And that was the main point here. He said, I will be with my child again. And eventually my sin consequences will be over. Until now I'll deal with them. Until the, until the Lord returns. Until I go with him. Our sins have consequences. But when God forgives us. He wipes them away, which is incredible. He gives us a chance so that when we are with him one day in glory, all sin will be wiped away. And all tears, all weeping will be wiped away. If we repent and allow that outrageous sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus to cover us. I don't know where you are today. I don't know, maybe some of you guys are in the midst of sin right now. You're trying to figure out how to get out. I hope this sermon gave you a pretty clear direction of which way to head. But I want you to know if you're sitting this, here this morning, you're like, I can't repent. I don't, my sins have been way too far. Jesus doesn't even want to hang out with me. Remember that when we repent of our sins, it doesn't matter how big what you've done, that the, the cross is enough. The sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to cover your sins. And I hope this week, if you, want, if you want to walk away with something I should do this week, I hope this week uh, you'll spend time asking God for conviction and guilt. Say, God, are there areas of my life that I'm blinded to, that I'm just deceived, uh, I don't even aware of? And ask Him to bring conviction and guilt in those areas. And then repent. Recognize the severity of your sin. Be passionate about being changed. Has to restore that joy. And then use your life as a testimony to show God's forgiveness to others. Say, look what the Savior has done for me. Let's pray.
Father, you're good. We love you. We thank you so much for the cross, the atonement for our sin. We didn't deserve it, and you, you died for us. Thank you for making it sufficient for even the worst of sins, for a sinner like me, the chief of sinners, Father. God, we thank you for putting the story of David and Bathsheba in your word so that when we read it, we can hear of true repentance. Father, I pray that we would not just be hearers of your word, but we would also be doers, that when we mess up, Father, we would come to you with a heart of repentance, the heart that you long to see, the heart that you desire, and we'd be able to repent with true repentance. Thank you for the good work you're doing in our church. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.